Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by the National Political Director of Planned Parenthood, Yasmin Raji. Yasmin Raji, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Our listeners might have heard of Planned Parenthood. I'm sure they're aware of the organization and some of the work that it does. But there's often a misconception that Planned Parenthood is focused solely on the issue of abortion. But that's not all it does. Could you explain the full range of health services and work that Planned Parenthood does? Sure. Uh, So Planned Parenthood organizations uh, all across the country uh, provide high-quality health care that includes abortion services in most states, uh, but also includes things like SDI screenings, um, you know, uh, general uh, in many places, uh, particularly our rural Planned Parenthood providers, uh, end up uh, providing a a broader range of health care needs that folks may have and may not be able to find um, in other places. And I think what's really amazing about Planned Parenthood Health Centers, and what I hear when I speak to our patient advocates is that for many folks, um, Planned Parenthood facilities are the first places where they have quality, non-judgmental care, no matter who they are, where they come from, et cetera. Um, So that work is incredibly important, uh, especially in communities uh, where there is a lack of healthcare access. Um, And then in my lane of work on our political side is not for Um, those organizations, but rather for the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, which is um, the political arm, uh, political and advocacy arm of the organization. And our job is to make sure that uh, we are fighting um, our legislative fights and also our electoral fights to make sure that um, at the healthcare, uh, at the health facility level, um, there are not uh, laws that block people from getting that high quality non-judgmental care. And as healthcare becomes um, un- increasingly politicized, especially in our states, uh, the role of Planned Parenthood advocacy and political organizations becomes that much more important uh, for our patients and our providers to be able to get access to care. And the work that you do with Planned Parenthood's Action Fund is something that was highlighted by the President and Chief Executive Officer Alexis McGill-Johnson recently who stated how the attempts to restrict abortion in America have forced the organization to become both a healthcare provider, but also an advocacy group. How's that development really shaping the organization's work and changing what Planned Parenthood does and how it sees itself? Yeah, so on the healthcare side, uh, we're in a moment of a healthcare crisis nationally. And so our Planned Parenthood um, affiliates all across the country are doing amazing work to innovate on the healthcare side of things to make sure that folks in rural communities, um, in inner cities, uh, folks who don't have health insurance, folks who are undocumented, are all able to access high-quality care in a changing healthcare landscape and one that is fundamentally broken. So there's amazing, innovative, important work happening on the healthcare side of Planned Parenthood organizations. And then, of course, on the political and advocacy side of the organization on which I sit, um, there's a, same, this, a similar need for uh, that innovation and growth. Um, and so we're seeing that uh, our supporter base is growing exponentially. Uh, we now have 13 million supporters uh, on our uh, list and folks that are activated 
uh, ready to get activated for the 2020 cycle, who we've seen activated in the past few, um, and the level of both legislative advocacy as well as electoral organizing um, that's led by uh, Planned Parenthood political and advocacy staff around the country is um, has really sort of risen to best in class um, in a way that is transforming our electoral and advocacy landscape. And we're really, really proud of both the healthcare side and how much innovation is happening there, as well as the political and advocacy side. And on the political and advocacy side, Planned Parenthood has just launched We Decide 2020, a plan to spend $45 million to support presidential, congressional, state-level candidates in 2020 who support abortion rights. Could you tell us a bit about this campaign, what you're hoping to achieve? And you mentioned, obviously, in the campaign about state-level candidates, how important it is to not just focus on the big names on the ticket, but also all of the races that are up for re-election? Well, thank you for that question. Um, the $45 million investment is, as you said, our biggest investment that we've ever made in a single election. And that is because everything is on the line and we don't have the option um, of uh, of not winning um, at every level. That includes the presidency, the Senate, and making sure that we're maintaining the House. But to your point, also make sure or also implies winning uh, in really big ways at the state level. Um, that last level is so important because of how many abortion bans we've seen in far too many states across the country. Abortion bans that are based on non-scientific misleading information. And we've been fighting those in the courts. Uh, we've been successful um, in making sure that we are blocking all of those abortion bans. Um, but we also know that you can't uh, only fight in, at the court level. We need to fight at the legislative level. And so um, up and down the ballot, we're making sure that we're uh, electing more and more champions. Um, and it's been really inspiring to see not only that we've been building really positive momentum uh, from 2016 until now, even before then, but um, at the you know the the crisis at the state levels um, has been uh, just as pronounced as the crisis that we're seeing federally uh, up at the White House and in the Senate. And um, the momentum has been amazing in places that are unusual and not places that we expected. So uh, to be able to win a governor's race in Kentucky in 2019. Um, and elect a pro-choice uh, governor who believes in abortion rights uh, in Andy Bashir is something amazing that I think is a signal of not just that um, the national work, the national landscape is changing, uh, but also in a lot of states that are traditionally uh, perceived as being really conservative on uh, the issues of sexual and reproductive health and rights. Voters are behaving in uh, the ways that those national trend lines are moving as well. You touched on this issue in the answer there, but while there has been progress with places like Kentucky seeing them elect a Democratic governor, places like Kentucky, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, they've not just tried to roll back protection so far when it comes to women's reproductive rights. They've actually taken it a step further by passing medical abortion reversal laws which would require providers to tell patients they can reverse their abortions, a concept docs and scientists have stressed is not backed by science, is not backed by facts. Mm. Why are these state laws being passed and, and how is this being allowed when they're requiring doctors, scientists to push medical advice that has no basis in fact whatsoever? 
You know, you're touching on something that's really important, which is just how out of step lawmakers are, not just with voters, but also with basic facts. And that's something that we're seeing in far too many places and that uh, we are working very, very hard to shift at the ballot box uh, in all of those states. And we've got uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, local C4 organizations in all of the places um, that you just mentioned and working really hard to make sure that we are uh, electing champions there uh, and creating consequences for folks who have, um, to your point, uh, who are uh, uh, trying to pass laws that make absolutely no sense and undermine health care access. Um, I think what we're uh, working on as well as a complement to that, knowing that in some states we're not going to be able to win the majorities that we wish we could, um, is that we're working with a lot of uh, neighboring states to proactively codify abortion rights into state laws. So some states are working to repeal insurance bans, as you mentioned, um, state Medicaid bans. Uh, so progressive states like California and Illinois and others are looking at how they can ready their clinic staff for an influx of patients in the event that Roe should fall. Now, all of that is uh, the sort of bleak uh, version of things. Um, and our Planned Parenthood, local political and advocacy organizations are working day and night. I've never seen a more hardworking group of people than our staff in our states um, to make sure that whether it's at the court level, whether it's at the legislative level, whether it's at the electoral level, um, any place that we can fight these uh, bans, uh, we are able to do so. And so far in every single case, we've been successful um, at fighting them in the courts, uh, at least uh, stopping them for now. Something you highlighted there was how Planned Parenthood is challenging politicians who work against women's rights, fight against the issues that women care about deeply. And one of the politicians that Planned Parenthood has set their sights on recently is Senator Susan Collins of Maine, with Planned Parenthood accusing her of turning her back on women, citing her vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, despite Professor Christine Blasey Ford giving powerful testimony where she accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her when they were both at college. While that is obviously a, a strong example of a politician that Planned Parenthood believes needs to be removed, are, are there other main targets that Planned Parenthood is looking at saying these individuals need to go, they've proven themselves in Planned Parenthood's view, unworthy of the office they, they hold? I like the pun there, main targets and also uh, targets in Maine. Um, we obviously are uh, going to be working day and night to defeat Susan Collins. And one of the endorsements I am most proud of is our endorsement of Sarah Gideon, who's not just been a champion of abortion rights and more broadly of just sexual reproductive health and rights at, at all levels uh, as Speaker of the House in the Maine legislature, um, but she's also a former Planned Parenthood patient, which is so important. Um, and we have a growing number of former and current Planned Parenthood patients elected uh, at all levels um, of office. And that is just something that is critically important uh, to the points that you've brought up around misinformation and a lot of politicians leading uh, with things that are far from fact. We're seeing more and more leaders like Sarah Gideon, who are not just leading with scientific facts, but also with the personal experience of knowing the quality, non-judgmental care that Planned Parenthood organizations uh, provide in states across the country. So um, that is shifting our political paradigm uh, to elect folks who are former and, and current patients um, 
So uh, I think that's uh, we're really excited about that race. And to your broader question around are there other uh, targets, uh, there are a lot. And I think where a lot of my uh, obviously Donald Trump needs to be defeated. And I think that's the most obvious target. But when it comes to the U.S. Senate, which is uh, existential for us to uh, win uh, a majority of uh, reproductive health champions uh, back into, uh, there are a lot. Tom Tillis in North Carolina has got to go. Uh, Cory Gardner in Colorado has absolutely got to go. Uh, I mean, we can go on and on. Lindsey Graham in South Carolina um, is uh, someone who has uh, been leading with uh, nothing but misleading information on uh, abortion rights uh, in his tenure in the Senate. Uh, so uh, we've got an expanded map, and we're excited that we're going to be playing in states that folks have um, – not considered as top targets in the Senate before, and we are really enthusiastic about making sure that we have some wins. States like uh, we're looking at Alaska, we're looking at Tennessee, places that, um, you know, again, folks don't consider um, to be pink or uh, Planned Parenthood uh, friendly, but they are, and they're places where uh, we know that we're going to be able to work hard to bring up our issues and make sure that we are creating costs for um, incumbents that are uh, wildly out of step with uh, our values. While we've seen in the House a lot of progress when it comes to giving women a much more substantial platform, there are 102 women in the House. That's the largest number in history. And women now chair a record six House committees in a single Congress. While that's happened in the House of Representatives, the Senate includes 75 men versus 25 women that in six states, both senators are women and 13 states are represented by one man and one woman. 31 states are represented by two men. How important is it to have female representation in these offices, in these places like the Senate, like the House? Also at state levels, um, we could go through all the state legislators, but it take us a while to, to work through all of the ones where there is this disparity. How important is it to have women's voices when you're dealing with issues that are affecting women? You know, it's so, so critically important to continue to grow our numbers um, of women represented from city councils uh, all the way up to uh, the highest office in the land. It is something that um, we hear uh, from our patient advocates, from our volunteers, from our staff on a constant basis. And I think um, the record numbers of females elected to office, uh, particularly in the U.S. House, but also a record number of women governors um, and that are doing an amazing job uh, in states across the country. We're already seeing the fruits of their labor, not just in the kinds of policies um, that they are uh, working really hard to, uh, to pass and to, to create uh, some more political space for, but also in the way that they lead, um, and that is uh, is sort of equally important in making sure that a highly dysfunctional Congress, uh, in particular, uh, continues to uh, you know improve over time to get things done for uh, for folks all across the country that are counting on things like quality health care. Um, so we're really excited about the number of women um, that we have already endorsed that we're looking to endorse later this cycle. Two in particular, we already talked about Sarah Gideon uh, running against Susan Collins, who we're really excited about. Another woman that we're excited to have join the U.S. Senate um, is Barbara Bullier in the state of Kansas. 
a state that I think is most famous. It's not on all uh, folks' radars as a state with amazing female leadership, but they've got an amazing uh, female governor uh, now in Governor uh, Kelly. Uh, and then they have an, they had an amazing uh, governor in uh, Kathleen Sebelius, uh, who obviously played a leading role on health care uh, in this country as well. Um, so, you know, we're excited about uh, more female leadership and uh, and excited to have it in places like Kansas as well. Women's rights, as we've talked about in this interview so far, particularly reproductive rights in America, they've been under siege recently, particularly by the Republican Party. While some states have strengthened abortion protections or allocated abortion access funds, other states are rolling those back. We touched on some of the areas like Kentucky, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, where that's happened. But last year in 2019, state lawmakers introduced over 300 anti-abortion measures. An example of that recently in Texas, where lawmakers cut Planned Parenthood from the state's women's health program. Why are politicians launching attacks of this scales on women's rights and reproductive health services? Why do they feel that women can't be given access to these, what a lot of people would probably see as basic human rights to have access to those health services? So why are politicians attacking them like this? I mean, you're absolutely right that these are uh, our basic rights, and they're not uh, just our basic human rights. They're also um, our constitutional rights, um, and that's critically important for lawmakers uh, to, um, you know, continue to support. And instead, we're seeing in so many states, to your point, a record number of abortion bans, um, which we're, again, successfully fighting state after state. Um, but it's very disturbing behavior that we're seeing from so many legislators um, that is as you've said, it's out of step with science. It's out of step with uh, what 77% of Americans want to see. Um, and it hurts people's lives. So you brought up Texas, this, uh, this waiver, um, just, you know, a, a piece of news from this week of the Trump administration letting Texas block Planned Parenthood from serving Medicaid patients. This is something that is uh, not just conceptually uh, concerning. This is something that has will have a very direct impact on uh, our patients' lives, and it's reckless. It's repugnant. It is, you know, disturbing and out of state, uh, out of step with um, what lawmakers should be doing. And just to kind of look backwards on um, on similar uh, pieces of legislation um, or, or similar actions in Texas, when Texas first barred Planned Parenthood from serving patients, 40% fewer women got care. And that is um, something that I think I can't speak to the psychology of, uh, you know, to your question of why are people doing this? I can't speak to the psychology of why uh, this is something that folks believe they should be spending their time doing in elected office, um, besides maybe a, a desire for strange control over uh, people's bodies. Um, but the impact on people's lives is very direct, and it mostly hurts low-income folks and uh, folks of color. Overwhelmingly, it hurts women, but women aren't the only folks who come to our health centers. Um, we um, all across the country serve um, people of all genders, and um, you know all of actions like what we're seeing in Texas, um, you know, are are absolutely detrimental for their ability to access that quality, non-judgmental care. So we're really disturbed to see what's happening uh, in the the doors. 
um, closing for healthcare access uh, in Texas, but also all across the country and uh, how many people it's going to be hurting. The issue of access to reproductive health services is not just about a legal matter as something that you were highlighting there. It's also something about the fact that while the law Roe v. Wade enshrined a women's legal right to be able to access reproductive health services, have an abortion in the United States. There's a way the Republicans are slipping in the back door to deny them the opportunity by reducing the number of abortion clinics. And we've seen that in certain states in particular where they've really been hacked away. There are six states in the U.S. with only one abortion clinic. Missouri has been seeking to close its last abortion clinic, which has managed to fight to keep its doors open, which makes it almost impossible for women to be able to access an abortion and, and, and be able to seek medical support or treatment for it. How can that be undone? Because surely this infringes on the right to be able to access abortion services that was granted in Roe v. Wade. Absolutely. And, you know, I think bringing up Roe v. Wade is critically important in this moment because I think you're highlighting an important issue, which is that our right to access abortion in this country is very much in danger and protections that uh, have been enshrined by our Constitution um, are, uh, are, you know, are up in the air in a way that is deeply concerning, um, especially if you're a person of color or a low income person. And that's um, the communities we need, we most often serve. Um, you know, it's very likely that the court is going to render the protections of Roe uh, meaningless uh, when the Supreme Court rules on the Louisiana case uh, in June. Um, and even if that case, you know, we're talking about the courts, but also the political side of things, um, even if that case is ruled favorably, more than 200 members of Congress just publicly called for Roe to be overturned, which is unprecedented and deeply, deeply concerning that that's uh, the kind of action that uh, our members of Congress are seeking to take. So, um, you know, the, the solution for us uh, points all towards November of 2020, uh, which is that this election could determine if uh, both the future of Roe um, and the future of general, you know, our general rights even more broadly than that, uh, even if the court doesn't do so. Um, so we've talked about throughout this conversation how out of step that is with Americans, um, even in deeply red districts. There's not a single uh, state where abortion bans are popular. Um, that includes in all the states that you mentioned, the Oklahomas, the Kentuckys. Um, all of the polling is, um, you know, very clear uh, that folks are on our side and that 77 percent of Americans support access to abortion. So um, we think that all signs are pointing in a really, really optimistic direction with the voters that have already elected reproductive rights champions in Alabama, Kentucky and deeper red districts in Virginia, not to mention so many purple states all across the country. Um, but if we don't win um, at all the levels uh, from the White House down to state legislatures in 2020, uh, the stakes of what that means for Roe are uh, unbelievably high and the protections that states can offer um, even outside of, um, you know, a, a national Supreme Court decision uh, are also something that we need to take very seriously. This debate over abortion rights in America has not just propelled it back into the forefront of political debate. It's now one of the main issues that voters are aware of, are thinking about when they're considering 
which way that they want to vote. But it's also become a really hyper-partisan topic. We've seen Donald Trump become the first president of the United States to address the March for Life, an anti-abortion movement that, if it had its way, would overturn Roe versus Wade. And we've seen Republicans in Congress praising this move by Donald Trump repeatedly, despite the fact he's not the most, when you look at his past, evangelical individual. Do you think it's possible for that partisan divide to ever be closed? How do you reach across that partisan bridge when you're seeing instances like Donald Trump address the March for Life and his followers, his supporters in Congress standing alongside him? You know, I think you bring up a really important point, and we are a nonpartisan organization, and we have large numbers of Republican supporters, members. We have a Republican advisory board. So we as an organization um, are as disturbed as the political partisanship in this country and its direct impact um, on people's lives as uh, so many other organizations that are being um, hit directly by, by that impact. So it's something that um, that certainly keeps us up at night. And I think, um, you know, we used to endorse Republicans um, on a fairly regular basis. And as partisanship has increased, um, we have not at the federal level this cycle. Uh, we have not endorsed a single Republican in uh, the 2020 cycle. Um, maybe that will change. But uh, so far, signs are not pointing in a positive direction. Um and I think that the thing that's most concerning for us is that there's not that same partisan divide with people. And we're seeing that in all of our polling. So when we're talking about 77 percent of Americans believing uh, that Roe v. Wade uh, or supporting Roe v. Wade and um, and reproductive rights in general, um, that's, you know, crossing party lines. That includes Republicans. That includes independents. And when we're talking about. Uh, the fact that there's not a single state in the union where abortion bans are popular, that includes all of the reddest states in the country. And so uh, what I love about um, my job and the fact that I get to work with our Planned Parenthood political and advocacy organizations across the country is uh, for them, uh, those numbers aren't a hypothetical and they're not a statistic. Uh, they see on the ground just how many folks, uh, you know, in their communities, in their neighborhoods who come into their healthcare clinics, et cetera, are Republicans, are independents, are, you know, conservatives um, and uh, and support the work that we do and see on the ground the impact of Planned Parenthood um, in their communities. So um, it's disappointing and uh, and anti small d democratic, uh, just how partisan our elected officials have become. Uh, but folks on the ground, um, I think, tell a very different story. When you look at the issue of the partisan divide, you mentioned there, obviously, about how 77 percent of Americans support Roe v. Wade. You've got Republicans who agree with the work that Planned Parenthood is doing, trying to ensure that women have this access to health services, reproductive services, there are Republicans that believe in that, and it's not entirely red versus blue, this issue. But a lot of the opposition, uh, you know, almost all the opposition comes from the Republican side, which is hard to ignore, increasingly so. Sometimes it's gone beyond simple political debate or disagreements. We saw 
at an event honoring Martin Luther King Jr., North Carolina's Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who's running to be governor in that state, accused Planned Parenthood of having been, quote, created to destroy the entire black race. The right wing Washington examiner claims that Planned Parenthood has one goal, quote, to service abortions and profit from them. How does your organization respond to such tax? Because you obviously want to have that bipartisan work. You're a nonpartisan organization. You obviously want to have that element. But how do you respond to those attacks? How does that shape the strategy that Planned Parenthood takes when it's trying to woo over voters? The best way to respond to those attacks is by unelecting folks that are that out of step with voters. So uh, North Carolina is a great example. It's going to be one of our top targets this cycle all the way up and down the ballot. And we want to create consequences at the ballot box for folks who uh, publicly uh, make misleading and factually inaccurate and dangerous statements um, like you just mentioned. So uh, we have every intention of winning uh, up and down the ballot in North Carolina. And, um, you know, our folks are fired up to do so. So um, I think that's that's the that's the best way. I think the other thing is voters on the ground, like we've talked about, um, you know, they care about getting high quality health care. They care about, um, you know, the sort of bread and butter issues in their communities. And they are tired of politicians, uh, you know, politicizing things that should be their basic rights. And so I think the thing that's really important for our organizers on the ground that I think, you know, our team in Wisconsin has done an absolutely amazing initiative um, of what they call uh, a deep canvassing and um, I think they call it their uh, uh, listening focus, deep canvassing uh, effort, which is talking to folks that um, are not our biggest champions and who do have, um, you know, concerns about Planned Parenthood that are based on those falsehoods that they might hear on Fox News or that they might see as a headline in, um, you know, a right wing uh, newspaper, et cetera. And those folks are still members of our communities. And so what our Wisconsin team did, which I think is amazing, and other uh, organizations around the country have done similar things, is sit down with the folks who, you know, are have questions and uh, want to be listened to. And they listen really, really hard about what those concerns are that people have, what rumors it is that they've heard, um, you know, what uh, quote unquote facts they think that they've seen online. And before responding, before sort of countering with uh, with our own, um, you know, set of talking points or something like that, like uh, we see maybe on TV, our organizers listen and they ask questions and they try to really understand why uh, folks feel the way that they do. And the results of that have been really, really amazing, which is. Um, you know, it's a shocker that listening is a, is something that really is effective. And once folks are heard, there's a, the temperature comes down and then there can be a really direct conversation about the real truths of not just, you know, Planned Parenthood as a concept, as a national thing, but what does, what is Planned Parenthood specifically doing in that local community in Wisconsin? And what services does that clinic provide? And who are the patients uh, that come through their doors? And that 
really it doesn't just turn down the temperature it really does change people's perspectives um and so you know we talked about the 45 million dollar number um of how much we're going to be spending this election cycle and a lot of that is going to be spent making sure that our folks go out to the polls and a lot of that is going to be listening to voters and we uh feel a lot of confidence in um you know voters who are listened to and are heard and have the ability to express um you know their their thoughts however jumbled those might be and then um you know figure learn things together with us um we have a lot of confidence that that's going to lead to big wins um and that we that all needs to happen um either face to face or in personal conversations online or via text or whatever and so we're really excited about what we've been the work that our uh, local organizers have been doing around the country and how to scale all of that work up uh in 2020 looking at 2020 as a whole um to sort of wrap up the interview the guardian recently published an article by their us health reporter jessica glenzer titled will 2020 be the year abortion is banned in the us that was based on an interview with president and chief executive of planned parenthood alexis mcgill johnson who we talked about earlier with Donald Trump up for re-election in November which if he is successful could allow him to appoint a third supreme court justice to the court and a conservative supreme court set to take up its first abortion case June Medical Services versus Gee do you fear that headline could come true and how important is 2020 in protecting a woman's right to have access to health and reproductive services. 2020 is the most important election of our lifetimes, uh and I know folks say that every election year, but it really is because of how much is on the line for our fundamental rights and you're exactly right that uh Roe v Wade is under threat and that means that we don't just have to elect a new president um and a a real champion of sexual and reproductive health and rights who will protect Roe and also expand uh protections around our rights but it also means that we have to win the Senate i mean you're bringing up a really really important uh potential crisis which is if we need to uh fight another Kavanaugh case um our rights are very very much on the line and we will fight just as hard as we did Kavanaugh and hopefully have different results if god forbid that is the fight that we have between now and election day um but should that supreme court uh decision be or not supreme court decision excuse me if that um if a supreme supreme court nominee is something that is punted until uh after the election we absolutely need to have a senate uh that is um full of champions of uh planned parenthood um and that believes in a woman's right to not just uh you know a, a woman's right to choose but believes in protecting the constitutional right to reproductive rights um because of the important role that the senate plays uh in the judicial nominations process um so we are going to do every single single thing that we can that 45 million dollar number uh is our biggest investment because we understand that we don't have the option of losing the presidency and we don't have the option of losing the senate and we don't have the option of uh losing a house majority uh that has been a real protective layer here so um we're excited and i feel really optimistic about uh our ability to fight back 
um, and um, and it's going to be a busy year. Finally, where can people find out more information about the work that Planned Parenthood is doing in 2020? Get involved, sign up, donate, work with you to achieve what you want to do in 2020. What a great question. Uh, folks can go to PlannedParenthoodAction.org. Um, and on there, folks can sign up for free to be a member. That's critically important because we are going to be reaching out to our members to let them know about ways that they can get involved to support our endorsed candidates all across the country this cycle um, and get them trained up uh, to do so in a way that will ensure that we can win. Uh, they can also on there uh, sign up to make a donation um, and learn more about both who we've endorsed and, um, you know, you brought up the presidential early on in this conversation, um, and we've got a tracker on where all the presidential candidates stand on our issues um, so that folks can make informed decisions at the ballot box. Yasmin Raji, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was the National Political Director of Planned Parenthood Action Fund, Yasmin Raji. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Yasmin Raji and the work of Planned Parenthood on Twitter at PPACT and PlannedParenthood.org. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.